Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And every fortnight, well, some fortnights, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and her surrounds. Last episode was quite a while ago now, Alistair, so I'm probably testing you by uh, checking in to see if you remember what it was about. Oh, gee. Actually, I'd forgotten that that was part of our script. Uh, I do believe I remember it was a a somewhat controversial episode about the the little town of Wellington, loved by some listeners and uh, held in disdain by others. Yeah, well, as I was told uh, in the aftermath of releasing the episode, if I didn't want to do stories about Sydney... Why did I agree to uh, host a podcast with that title? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I loved it. And I, I know that a few people at least have got back to us saying they really enjoyed it. So had a lengthy, quite a few months off. I've got a new member of the family since then. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And we're somehow pulling it together to uh, get some time now to make some more episodes. And they will be coming back to fortnightly for the second half of the season, the last four episodes. Is that because you're back in lockdown? Uh, yeah, actually, actually, I was thinking that, that there's a weird symmetry to it. We created this podcast about a year ago when lockdown started, um, and now I'm back in lockdown. Uh, so more time on my hands in some ways, but to be perfectly honest with two young children, my life isn't very different from what it was before lockdown. Well, we're back into the second half of season two. Thanks for bearing with us, everyone. And Alistair, we didn't get to hear a clue because you weren't uh, prepared enough to drop us one uh, four months ago. But um, I, th- I believe you've got one now. Yeah, I, I certainly hadn't even concluded what I was going to be doing my next episode on at the time. Uh, though I did have my rough theme of water and we will be continuing with my water Thanks theme. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, yeah. That's, so that's the first clue. <laughs> but the, uh, the clue for this episode is uh, what do the Bronte Ocean Pool at the dawn of the 20th century and the Mornington Peninsula in 1978 have in common? The Bouge. <laughs> Probably not either of those things at that time, but certainly now. <laughs> no, uh, it's a it's the kind of clue that I don't imagine you will ever get. If anyone <laughs> fancies themselves as a clue getter, you could uh, pause the episode now and come back to find <laughs> <laughs> that the answer is the birth of the Australian crawl. Ah, okay. Uh, uh. <laughs> is, is sorry is the Mornington Peninsula one a pun on the band yes <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I thought you'd like that <laughs> I do love puns <laughs> yeah yeah I was uh, from the very moment that I decided that was what the podcast was going to be about I, I knew there was a clue in it but I wasn't quite sure how to write it but before I begin today's story, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which uh, I record, which is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, and the people on whose land the main part of our story takes place, which is also the same Bidjigal people, since it, the story takes place just down the road from me. And I'd like to acknowledge the uh, Wiradjuri people of the plains west of the Blue Mountains, which is where I'm recording uh, this episode from. Awesome. So let's get into it, Jed. And... Uh, Continuing from my last episode, uh, we're going to set the mood uh, with quite a specific time period, so 18, roughly 1897, and it's a beautiful su- sunny morning. In fact, it's exactly no, another sunny morning in the eastern suburbs. It's another sunny morning in the eastern <laughs> suburbs. I actually, it's March, yeah, so it's probably sunny. I didn't actually look it up, but let's imagine it's sunny. Mm-hmm. And there's a lively group of competitors, families, and spectators gathered around the Bronte Ocean Pool for a local swimming carnival. 
Uh, interestingly, the pool's existed since 1887. It's quite an old pool. Wow. Yeah. Among the hubbub, a group of young boys begin their race when suddenly eyes start to turn to the pool, gasps of shock and wonder ringing out under the cliffs. An otherwise unknown 12-year-old boy, Alec Wickham, newly arrived in Sydney from his native Solomon Islands, is shooting out ahead of the pack at a blistering pace, and he's propelling himself through the water in an utterly unorthodox manner. (laughs) His arms, well bent at the elbow, are swinging quickly one after the other over his head, and his legs are thumping up and down rhythmically, creating a trail of foam behind him. Astonished, the revered local swimming coach George Farmer jumps to his feet, Look at that kid crawling. I don't know why he has an American accent. He doesn't have an American <laughs> accent. I take that back. Try it again. Try it again in an English accent, which is probably uh, what he has. I don't want to do accents. I don't know why I've started this. <laughs> <laughs> what would someone at the turn of the century sound like? I don't know. Look at that kid crawling. He exclaims loudly as the crowd goes wild. At this moment, the crawl was born, and as it was then Australian athletes who carried this stroke to international competitions, it became known as the Australian crawl. It revealed revealed itself uh, to so clearly be the most efficient swimming stroke around that it became the only stroke to be seen in freestyle events, mm-hmm. in which really any stroke is permitted, and is therefore frequently referred to as freestyle these days. In fact, I think almost exclusively. That's how I talk about it, at least. Which is actually really confusing when you think about it, that it's called freestyle. Yeah, and it makes me regret every um, primary and high school swimming carnival when I did freestyle during freestyle when I should have been doing butterfly just to make a point. <laughs> you could have been doing anything. <laughs> No, that's really interesting. So I, the thing that springs to mind is what on earth were they doing in freestyle before? Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. I also thought the same thing. It's kind of, I hadn't really ever thought about the history of swimming before and what strokes people were doing. And so I had to do a bit of research about that. People before basically were doing a breaststroke a lot, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. It's quite a like natural, you have your head above the water. It's easy to breathe. It's kind of relaxed. It's kind of what I do when I get tired of doing freestyle because I'm not a very good swimmer. <laughs> and also a thing called side stroke. Mm. I don't know if you... Yeah, I know side stroke. Okay, cool. I think you still learn it if you're training to be a surf lifesaver because um, it might be good for helping to carry people. I think it's also quite an energy efficient stroke. So it's good in like a sort of safety situations, even if you're not towing someone else, but just if you're trying to, you know, get to that deserted tropical island that you've become shipwrecked off right so actually this question that you're asking right here is going to lead us straight into this into the story the way that i've prepared it which is excellent so basically today i'm kind of thinking we can we're going to go back learn a bit about the history of swimming and then a few locations in sydney along the way that are tied to the history of swimming in australia and this kind of event of the the australian crawl and then we'll finish the episode with this live performance by the eponymous band (laughs) all right fire away can't wait to hear it all right so as i said never given uh, the history of swimming that much thought in my life i must admit but obviously humans have been swimming for a very very long time so it's one of those classic situations and also swimming all over the world. It's one of those classic situations. We're just going to like jump in straight to like Victorian England and say that's the start of the modern sport of swimming, which is, you know, a little problematic because as we'll find out in the story, there's there's a lot to be learned from loads of cultures all around the world. And uh, in fact, Europe was not a particularly uh, 
forward place in swimming for a long part of its history. But, you know, the record books and the timekeeping and the formalized thing and the pools of standard lengths and stuff like that. It's very Victorian England. and the <laughs> So they're the ones who kind of get to, to say that they, they started it, you know? Mm-hmm. So really, this is a early to mid 1800s and breaststroke or side stroke, as we were talking about, were the kind of the way to go initially, maybe a bit of doggy paddle as well. But the breaststroke and side stroke kind of have in common that they involve a burst of propulsion with a really large underwater leg kick. So mm. you have that frog kick in breaststroke or in side stroke, it's kind of you've twisted your torso. And so it's more like a scissor kick with the legs, but a really big a scissor kick that kind of bursts you forward and then you glide forward and then you take your next stroke mm-hmm. okay so that's how I it think... starts does that make sense <laughs> well I, th- I thought i knew what side stroke was but after your explanation i'm not sure what i thought it was or what it is <laughs> yeah it's, it, i did i did anticipate this being a difficulty with the episode you can go online and have a look at some youtube videos yeah send them to youtube side strokes a bit hard to, it's hard to describe yeah i the way i would think of it is you're it's you're on your side obviously so i think of the legs as functionally the same as breaststroke but kind of on your side yeah and then your arms you reach forward yep. and your back arm goes out with one arm and your your other arm goes back and then they come together slowly like like exactly you're attracting your arms in breaststroke and then lunge forward again that is a much better explanation of what side stroke is that's yeah that's exactly what i believe side stroke to be too <laughs> as a practicing side stroker you're very welcome <laughs> all right excellent so i hope that those explanations of what these strokes look like helps out and it wouldn't be an alistair story uh if we didn't really start on the other side of the world from sydney but i'm gonna keep the tradition uh going but take us away from england and straight to argentina for our next scene mm. Mm. so we're going back to uh the early 1860s and a young british lad who's about 11 years old by the name of john trudgeon has just moved to buenos aires with his parents there he enjoyed swimming with the local kids who swam with a, for him, novel indigenous style, which involved bringing each arm completely out of the water and over and around the head. So as you can see, people in other parts of the world are doing something much more recognizable to us. This is just really sad because it just immediately makes me think, oh, this whole other thing that I hadn't realized had become globally homogenous has in fact become globally homogenous and used to be full of interesting regional variation. Yes. Yeah, That's. I also have been thinking a lot about that, of how exciting these events would have been where people would just turn up from other parts of the world and just be doing things you'd never considered before. I think sport would have been a lot more interesting in those days. I think a lot of things were a lot more interesting in those days. Yeah, like team sports where people would just come on a train like across the country and you had no idea what tactics they would use or how they'd play and you'd never seen it before and they might just be doing something really novel. Yeah, so different indigenous cultures throughout the world swim in different ways. And when Trudgeon kind of was swimming with these indigenous kids in Buenos Aires, he realized that this was quite a successful and interesting way to swim. So he adapted his swimming. He was quite young at the time, probably not thinking that much about it. But when he moved back to England, he started to make an enormous splash when he was going to these competitive swimming meets and his and swimming a completely different stroke. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the first meet in 1873, we have a, a reporter for the swimming record. Uh, we have an account of, uh, of this swim, um, which is full of bizarre backhanded compliments, uh, such as this one. Like, Trudgeon swam with both arms entirely out of the water, an action peculiar to Indians. His time was very fast, 
particularly for one who appears to know but little of swimming. (laughs) (laughs) So good. (laughs) I think he was like, he was winning these races, but still, you know. Yeah, he doesn't understand the culture of swimming, does he? (laughs) No. It's it's not just about doing well at swimming. Swimming's more of a vibe, which he doesn't embody. He doesn't. He gets from one end to the other very well. You've got to give him that. But gosh, he doesn't know anything about swimming. So two arms out of the water. Are we thinking Australian crawl style? Or I'm kind of, I'm picturing butterfly, to be honest. Okay. Crazy arm swing. Yeah. So let's get to this straight away. So what did the stroke look like? The way that Trudgeon did it was a kind of a strange mongrel mix. Again, you can see this on YouTube if, you, if you're interested. It's basically the legs stay the same as side stroke. Doesn't look anything like normal freestyle these days. You're doing this kind of, how did you explain it? Oh, your body's on the side, but you're, it looks a bit like a breaststroke kick, right? At the mm-hmm. back. And then because your body's on its side, the arms coming over the head are more or less as close to a, a freestyle or crawl arm stroke as you could be, but it's asymmetrical because you're lying on your side. Right. So he was like 90% of the way there. He just had to flop his stomach down. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So he didn't have the he didn't have the kick going. The kick does make a big difference because basically it's such a stop start motion, momentum's lost every mm. every stroke to an extent. Which is which is actually what makes a freestyle so quick and in fact quicker than butterfly where you get a tremendous burst of speed but you don't have the consistent momentum mm-hmm. yeah very interesting to have a look on youtube basically to start with and we'll see throughout this episode this is a kind of running theme it's considered a stroke that's extraordinarily taxing on the body and exhausting and so could only ever be maintained for a very short distance initially so the reporter who i was was talking about before he goes on to note i've seen many fast exponents retain the action for some distance but the great exertion compels them to desist very much fatigued in trudgeon however a totally opposite state of things existed for here we had a man swimming apparently easy he doesn't know anything about swimming i don't know what he's talking about (laughs) so somehow he's doing this thing it shouldn't shouldn't work by the laws of swimming but he's managed to pull it off so although Trudging kind of proved it was viable to swim short distances uh, in this way, it was still viewed as a really strenuous and exhausting stroke for longer distances for, for quite a long time. So in August 1875, Trudging really like established that this was the way to swim sprints um, when he won the English 100 yards championship in this style. But I think in exactly the same month, August 1875, the uh, swimming buffs among us will know that uh, Captain Matthew Webb was the first uh, person to swim the English Channel. And that was very much going all the way in breaststroke. Uh, in, it was 21 hours and 45 minutes. And for those kind of, any, any longer swimming, you would, you would do breaststroke because it's too exhausting to have your arms coming out of the water over your head. And this trend kind of established itself for for quite some time uh, in the history of swimming. Trudging was for short distances and then breaststroke to swim anything really longer than maybe 100 yards, a couple of hundred yards. And so Trudging brought this stroke wholesale from Argentina or he adopted elements of the Argentinian style combined with his own side, British side stroking and combined them into a new style? That's a very good question. And I don't actually know the answer. It's also, as we'll kind of see through this uh, episode, 
uh, people like there's quite a lot like well comparatively a lot about Trudgeon to be found if you want to read about it like he's quite famous uh, and quite significant in the history of swimming whereas the native peoples that he borrowed the idea from uh, you know there's very little written about them it doesn't really come up so I I don't know exactly how they were swimming um, I, I kind of imagine it might he might have kind of mixed two things together and perhaps they were swimming something a bit closer to the to the crawl hmm I don't, I'm not sure, but uh, as we'll see, there's different parts of the world. So South America, definitely the South Pacific. I think even uh, up the some native peoples in what's now Canada. There's some records of them in the 1830s, kind of coming to Britain and swimming what now seems to us to have been basically the crawl. But it was like you know the British again were like amazed. Oh, looks crazy, but it'll never catch on. And you know, and then it and it disappeared for another. 80, 70, 80 years. And do any of these strokes have names? Uh, the Did indigenous Trudgen strokes? give it a jazzy name? Uh, so Trudgeon Stroke is known as and continues to be known as the Trudgeon Stroke. <laughs> so he, he got all the credit. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it certainly seems like. Uh, but yeah, as you can see from the the report, it was it was recognized that, that this stroke had come from indigenous cultures in South America. All right, where to from here, Alistair? So, all right. So with this state of the game kind of established, this is the latter part of the 1800s. We'll now turn to the corner of the world that we like to call Sydney and which this podcast is ostensibly about Mm -hmm. for our first swimming character, who is uh, Fred Lane. Great swimming name. Yeah, yeah, indeed. (laughs) Stuck to his lane. I don't actually know if there were lanes back then. In fact... (laughs) (laughs) Don't get distracted, Alistair. That's not what this episode's about. The good thing is uh, we're going to find out quite soon that there probably weren't very good lanes because uh, a lot of swimming seemed to happen just in, in rivers or kind of natural bodies of water rather than uh, necessarily swimming pools, especially for longer mm. distances. So Fred Lane was fortunate in that his father was a fairly wealthy businessman and a benefactor. So he's kind of a classic you know, Victorian amateur sportsman who's only able to be amateur because uh, his family's wealthy. Legend has it that he nearly drowned as a young lad and was pulled out of Sydney Harbour by his brother, which then inspired him to learn to swim. I think this was about the age of four. Hmm. And he turned out to be uh, very, very good at it. By uh, the 1898-99 season in New South Wales, he was uh, winning, I think he won all but one of the state freestyle titles. Um, swimming the Trudgeon style. So he would have been swimming all kinds of different distances. And the notable thing about Fred Lane in the history of swimming is that he took this Trudgeon style and applied it to kind of longer distances. He would just swim everything in the Trudgeon. He didn't uh, only use it for uh, shorter sprints. Right. Well, the particularly impressive event was when uh, Lane won the New South Wales mile long title using the uh, Trudgeon style. And this was in 1899 at Wagga Wagga in the Murrumbidgee River. There you go. When you were saying that um, people used to swim in the rivers, I was going to make some crack about back when they had water. But the Murrumbidgee at Wagga is full of water because they diverted the snowy basically into the Murrumbidgee through the snowy hydro scheme. Oh, there you go. So that's that stretch of river is actually uh, Wagga has a beach now. And it's quite dangerous because the water's really fast flowing and a, and a high volume. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. But in 1899, mm. that wouldn't have been the case, right? No, no, no. Still 50 years shy. My point more being that if you were to sw- try and swim in an inland river today, it would be a difficult thing to do a mile long race in many of them. Well, 
1899, you could do it in the Murrumbidgee. And they did. And he swam the whole thing in the trudgeon. The only difficulty was he swam uh, apparently something that could have been a world record time potentially. But as you were saying about this interesting, fun situation of people doing things on the other side of the world from each other, um, the Englishmen who kind of kept the swimming records uh, of the day uh, were pretty suspect of any records that uh, were claimed to have been made in anywhere other Not than England, England or at least in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Fred Lane kind of had to set off uh, for England to prove just how good he was. His family kind of paid for him to go over to Britain, show what he could do. And while he was over there, he uh, popped across to Paris for the 1900 Olympics, kind of good timing, where he became the first of Australia's impressive line of Olympics, Olympic swimming champions. Oh, wow. Yeah, the first Australian uh, swimming champion, because this is only the second ever Olympics. And I think you're going to like this part of the episode, Jen, <laughs> because the kind of events that he won uh, were first off the kind of fairly plain 200 meter freestyle, but it was in the muddy waters of the Seine River, which is nice. kind of cool. But then followed that up by winning another event, which has disappeared from the Olympic program since. Uh, in fact, this was the only time that it occurred, which was the 200 meter obstacle race. Nice. Yeah. So the competitors were required to clamber across rowing boats and then like swim under punts. And I think there was also some barrels floating on the water <laughs> that they had to go over. Oh, it's like these inflatable <laughs> obstacle courses that you they put up at council pools. Yeah, it Have sounds you done amazing. One of them? No. I, oh man, they're so fun. Yeah, I I feel like we're missing so something fun. by not having this in the Olympics anymore. Well, you can't. It's like what they only want things in the Olympics that you can like get more and more technical with. Although I suppose I, I shouldn't say that you can't get more and more technical with, with yeah. obstacle course <laughs> courses. But some things just you know should be left for enjoyment alistair do you have to make everything into yeah, that's a late competition yeah. sometimes you feel like no, no, no. does it need to be in the olympics anyhow uh so in this 200 meter obstacle course uh lane might have had a certain advantage having grown up around the boats in sydney harbour and potentially kind of climbing in and out of them but he uh he, he really did a cracking time faster than some of the other competitors did the 200 meter freestyle with no obstacles <laughs> Yeah. And the other event that I do not believe he participated in, at least he didn't he didn't get a get a place on the podium that again was cancelled after this Olympics was underwater swimming. Ah, the old classic see how far you can go without coming up for air. Yeah, I think we've all played it in our backyard swimming pools if we've been around one, right? Uh, but it was it was an Olympic event in the Seine River in 1900. You got uh, one point for each second that you were underwater and two points for each meter that you uh, managed to travel underwater. I like it. But he wasn't, Fred Lane wasn't a starter. No, I don't think so. He couldn't use the trudgeon for it. Uh, the thing that I found really amusing about it, I think this was possibly on Wikipedia, classic Wikipedia line, was it was like, it didn't feature in later Olympics because of a lack of spectator appeal, which immediately I thought like, <laughs> I obviously... <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> it makes me think of um, in one of the Harry Potter, which Harry Potter is it? Harry Potter uh, four, Oh yeah, with the, I think, the trophy tournament. And the underwater competition. <laughs> and they all jump in and there's a stadium of people who just sit there for an hour until someone comes out with like, you know, holding the, the, the prize. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how did they all sustain that level of interest for that whole time when they had no idea what was going on? Yeah, really, really bad spectator sport, the Triwizard Tournament. Yeah, I think <laughs> all of it's it. like Thank that, you. right? Yeah, the, there's also that uh, 
what do you call it? A labyrinth. Anyway, we're getting distracted. Um, the uh, the other thing uh, about this um, this Olympics that I thought you might be interested in is that there weren't any gold medals or gold, silver, bronze medals uh, for Olympics until the third Olympics in 1904. So instead... Uh, Fred Lane received two bronze sculptures for his two two first place finishes, and one was a, go- a bronze sculpture of a horse, and the other one was of was called Farm Girl with Rake, which I can only imagine my mother in law would just love to have on display in her dining room. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! I think that's way better than boring old medallions. Yeah, it sounds. Ca- I, I also like that they're completely unrelated to the to the sport that you won in. Like you get kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like nostalgic peasant imagery, <laughs> regardless of like what the event was. <laughs> oh yeah, those things would be worth a few bob these days. I'd well, say. Well, tragically, these these historic bronze trophy sculptures are no longer to be found uh for fred lane's house tragically burnt down uh towards the very end of his life and the majority of his trophies and memorabilia uh were destroyed with it that is a shame i know i was pretty gutted when i found out we could have gone to a museum and looked at those i know you can find some online auctions for some of the still uh, some of it's apparently a little fire damaged the rest of his memorabilia and i I also have some questions about his house because i looked into it i found a found an article, a domain article, you know how they do like the features for interesting historical houses, saying it was Fred Lane's old house, this this huge uh, mansion in a Cremorne Point, which I was a bit confused by since it was meant to have burnt, burnt down, but maybe he moved to another house in his later years and that burnt down, but his original mansion at Cremorne Point still stands. Not quite, I couldn't find anything more about it. Right. We're still, it's still the Trudgeon stroke, Alistair. I believe this episode was supposed to be about the Australian crawl. Yeah, look, I, it is. But I also wanted to get some Sydney, uh, Sydney locations in. So oh, despite good, the yep. fact that, <laughs> that, uh, that Fred Lane's uh, Farm Girl with Rake trophy is gone, he does have some historic ties to a location, at least one location in Sydney that I could find, which is the McCullum swimming pool at Cremorne Point. Uh, which I don't know if you know it. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. It's like mm-hmm. a very picturesque thing. It's the kind of thing you could imagine definitely being all over Instagram. It's a beautiful little pool right on the harbour. I'd never thought of it as having anything to do with Instagram, but it is a lovely spot facing uh, to the west on Cremorne Point, I believe. I'm not sure. I think you might be able to see the opera house from it. I'm... Yeah, so that would be right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, I haven't really been there, um, but it looks really beautiful and I would love to go. I think if one thing this researching this episode has made me like intent on going to all of the small pools around Sydney Harbour and Sydney beaches and just trying them out for the fun of it. Um, anyhow, beautiful pool. Yeah, there's certainly a few winners. That's uh, one of my many previous uh, work sites from my Bush Regen days oh, nice. around there. Nice. Mm. If you were paying close attention to the uh, historical plaques, which are... I think you're the kind of person who probably does. You might have seen that uh, there's a plaque explaining that the pool was originally constructed as a somewhat crude tidal rock pool by the one and only Fred Lane, who was a local resident, after his triumphant return to Sydney in the early 1900s. Cool. Yeah. But then another local resident called Hugh McCullum, obviously, uh, enlarged and modernized it and stole the naming <laughs> rights recognition, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. But there is a mention. There is a mention of Fred <laughs> Lane uh, on a plaque down there, from what I can tell. Can't actually go there because of lockdown. <laughs> Anyhow, getting back. So the Trudgeons, the Trudgeons kind of getting more. You can use it for longer distances now. But we're going to move right into 
the the crawl story here. The last kind of personal family that we need to know about before we can get back to that event at Bronte Pool is the Cavill family. Cavill? I apologize to if I'm pronouncing it wrong. I'm going to say Cavill from now. So the father, Frederick Cavill, had uh, famously swum over 20 miles down the Thames in 1876. He was from England. And he uh, came within a few hundred yards of swimming the English Channel before moving to Australia and Sydney, where he styled himself as a professor of swimming. And uh, undertook many exciting things like swimming from Parramatta to Sydney, but also training his uh, children and many uh, Sydney siders uh, to swim. And he owned a number of uh, floating bath buildings or natatoriums. He was into the Latin, I guess, in Sydney Harbour. And they were at uh, Lavender Bay Farm Cove, which is Botanical Gardens, and uh, Woolloomooloo. Uh, sadly, none of them exist anymore. I think some of them were kind of blown over the harbour in large gales and just crashed into rocks. <laughs> so, so what is a floating bath building? So I think it, from what I can gather, it's they actually had like an enormous metal tub that was floating in the harbour that they then, I guess, had pumps filling with, with water and kind of cleaning out and then like wooden changing buildings around it i do have an image of the one at lavender bay there was a gentleman gentleman's and a ladies separate two separate ones and they look quite a lot like that uh dawn fraser one in balmain which is also a beautiful pool yeah yeah in terms of the kind of the structures around them okay i think that that one was also i think the way that 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 uh dawn fraser one looks right now was a early 1900s kind of revamps uh so that's same kind of era so just imagine that flying across the harbor in a gale (laughs) yeah exactly loose time (laughs) indeed so there is an image which will i'll get up on social media at some point of the one that's at lavender bay but as far as I can tell, while we're in COVID really lockdown, I can't actually go there to find out firsthand, but I've done some serious Google Street View sleuthing. I would say that counts as essential work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is it? I don't make any money from it. <laughs> in fact, I lose money. <laughs> we, might, we might commercialize this podcast at some point. <laughs> One day. Yeah. It's kind of like Uber, you know, like we haven't made the profits yet. They, yeah. They're still to come. <laughs> Yeah, so anyhow, I believe there's a plaque. There, there's supposed to be a plaque kind of just underneath the r- railway viaduct in a kind of embedded in some uh, natural sandstone. But from what I can see on Google uh, Street View, it's been ripped out. I can see the hole where it used to be and there's just some broken metal fittings and no no plaque. <laughs> so I don't know if you can find much about the Cavill family on the streets of Sydney right now, but we'll have to petition to get that plaque back. <laughs> All right, to North Sydney Council. <laughs> Good. Anyway, as you might expect, the old Professor Cavill taught his numerous sons how to swim, and all of them became prominent and influential, important, competitive swimmers. For those interested in the history of swimming, they would definitely know these uh, these lads. Um, and our particular interest with the Cavills uh, in relation to the Australian crawl is that there's kind of ample evidence that the that three of the brothers, uh, Sid. Arthur, who seems to have had a nickname Tums, and Dick, so Sid, Tums, and Dick all swam versions of the crawl in the late 1890s. And actually, this is where the, the, 
I threw you in with this exciting story of the event at Bronte Pool, but mm. it seems that the story is more complicated than that. <laughs> so there's ample evidence that they were swimming a version of the crawl, versions of the crawl prior to Wickham's arrival in Sydney. So we'll get to that complication in a moment. But in the late 1890s, Sid Cavill was on his way to the USA for some competitive swimming, and he uh, stopped on the way in the South Pacific and raced a Samoan woman. And, and was absolutely amazed at the way she was swimming with an effortless crawl, which from his recollections, she seemed to do without even bothering to kick her legs at all. But it was very effective. So I guess this probably looked a lot more like what we're used to seeing in that her legs were just kind of, she was probably belly down, if that makes sense, mm. and arms straight going straight over. And because this kick in some ways is actually hindering you by stopping and starting the momentum, she, she could swim really well without doing the kick. And so they were kind of figured that she might be onto something. Uh, so upon uh, their, his return to Sydney, uh, Sid told his brother Tums about the experience. And Tums then embarked upon a series of challenges to, follow, to fellow uh, Sydney swimmers in which he swam with his ankles bound. and his, So his legs tied up. And then he would say, I bet I can beat you even with my legs tied up. And, the, you know, classic, right. classic ruse jumps in and swims just with this crawl overarm and and inevitably wins. Ah, and that's how they figured out the legs were an impediment. <laughs> yeah. So this kind of caused quite a lot of amazement and confusion and, you know, everyone was excited about it. But this is still kind of early experimental days in Sydney, at least, with this kind of this kind of swimming. So Tums then taught his younger brother Dick, again, to swim in this kind of style. And then Dick, instead of kind of messing around, screwing with people with these show races, uh, he actually just sw combined it into his repertoire when swimming competitive races. So he would swim the trudgeon for most of the race. And then at the end, he would just kind of whip out the full crawl. And it seems from accounts, it's a little hard to tell, but it seems he might have actually been doing what we would think of now as the crawl with the proper foot kicks, pitter-pattering behind him, and then the arms over the head. And he would use that for short bursts of speed at the end to kind of win the race. I was kind of picturing them doing mermaid kicks because his uh, brother, Tums, with his legs tied together. Yeah, look, someone else has done a great deal of research into this, and even they said that it was uh, inconclusive, but it se they seem like something like we what we would recognize as crawl kick kicks because it was described at least in one account as something like the dog paddle kick, which that probably was more like that the kind of kick that we use now in freestyle. But look, it's inconclusive. <laughs> okay, got it. I've come to no conclusions. This makes the kind of the this Bronte Baths kind of quasi-myth, this exciting story where it's just this one event where this young boy comes and just blows the whole world open for competitive swimmers in Sydney and Australia. Look, it's not quite as simple as that, but still it seems to be an interesting case where the kind of British swimming establishment in Australia has learnt this swimming style from the South Pacific Islanders. So we're going to get to to the Bronte Baths story now to finish off. Uh, so why why do we have this Bronte Baths myth and what happened at Bronte Baths? So this this the story that I started off with is actually what you will find all over the internet and all through lots of books about the history of swimming. It's kind of the the lazy go-to story of of the history of the Australian crawl. Mm-hmm. Is that this young boy, Alec Wickham, came in and swam an amazing race at Bronte Bars and suddenly everyone was blown away and started copying him and realized it was the way of the future. But some a really interesting recent research has actually unearthed 
that there was a contemporary local newspaper report of Alec Wickham's swing, swim that shows that the story is more complicated and that the Cavills had a role to play, um, as we have been talking about. So this is the uh, the new newspaper report. It said, Apparently, the crawl stroke and kick by which Dick Cavill obtained so much pace in his sprints is not new after all. For last Saturday at the Eastern Suburbs Carnival, a South Seas Island boy named Wickham romped away with the boys' race, winning by a full dozen yards. His style, both stroke and kick, being an exact counterpart of Cavill's. This lad is said to have only arrived from the islands a few weeks ago, but I had never seen Cavill swim. So, for all we know, this new style might be quite common amongst the islanders. Jeez. So, the name's an absolute misnomer and a blatant example of whitewashing. Yes. So, the crawl name, it, it, yeah, you, it's good that you picked up on that. That part, like, is a great story that this, like, coach just like yelled it out out of nowhere and that's the end the name stuck but they were all obviously this crawl terminology predated the event and again it's not quite clear where it came from but it definitely wasn't from this event well it sounds like it's from the south pacific right we've got samoa we've got the solomons two different completely unrelated connections sorry you're talking about the australian part of the australian crawl yeah, yes. 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 Sorry, I that am. part, obviously. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was already, I, I kind of moved on from that. It's definitely, definitely the Australians didn't invent it. They definitely uh, took it from from other cultures. Uh, yeah, so the, the part of the story where the, the word crawl came from this event isn't quite true. It's definitely not an Australian stroke. It's a, perhaps popularized within the Western Anglo-centric competitive swimming sphere by australians is the idea here we go myth busted uh yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah the larger myth could be i yeah could i think be busted quite quickly and but then even the myth that it was this one event at bronte pools isn't quite right um and so part of the reason why this this one event at bronte pools probably became the story is just because it's a good story to think that like this one kid just turned up and everything changed and there was this single moment of inspiration rather than a kind of messy evolution and multiple people learning it from different South Sea Island experiences. (laughs) (laughs) It also kind of has, like, it is a cross-cultural story and there is a fairly strong racial element to the story by nature of, of what was happening. And this also seems to have probably played into the myth that developed out of it somewhat because it was kind of played along with the stereotype and that was a compelling story for people of this time that there's kind of this exotic South Sea Islander with tremendous physical capabilities and innate aquatic prowess who's kind of young and uh, then he comes in and in one moment introduces this kind of stroke to white Australia where it's then kind of refined and perfected with a clinical precision by Australian swimmers. So we actually have some kind of accounts to illustrate that this was at least for some people, how this story ended up being told in this way. So in 1911, the Sydney sportsman swimming columnist claimed uh, the crawl stroke was not invented. It was only collared from the Solomon Islanders N-word racial slur. Alec Wickham brought the crawl to Sydney. Tums Cavill saw its worth and Dick Cavill put it to its legitimate use. This is the story that we kind of started with where there's this one event and then other people kind of uh, inspired by it and then turn it into a professional swimming style, which isn't at all what actually happened. 
But it then a prominent guy in the swimming world called Dudley Helmrich wrote a book, I think in the year 1930, which told this general story that there was this one event and then the Cavills kind of copied it a bit and then suddenly turned it into a professional swimming stroke. But it was all after this one event at Bronte Pools. And then it seems to basically have just been copied from there. Like, as as you know, a good, good researcher just writes the same story that they've read somewhere else. <laughs> Maybe embellishes a little... Yeah, it was only in uh, 2006 that two academics called Gary Osmond and Murray G. Phillips uh, published an article called Look at That Kid Crawling in the academic journal Australian Historical Studies. And hats off to them. It's a really, really excellent piece of thoroughly researched, uh, but really, really readable and fascinating kind of academic work. I would really recommend it. It's a shame it's behind a paywall, but if you have any way of getting uh, getting this article, it's a good, good read. And that's where I've kind of got the most of the material for this story. So really, in conclusion, something really significant in the history of Western competitive swimming did happen in 1901 at Bronte Baths. Uh, so Alec Wickham did swim a remarkable and newsworthy race uh, because suddenly there was this kind of unknown young boy who was swimming a really effective version of what was kind of at that time considered to be a, a kind of experimental, weird thing that the Cavills were doing. Also, he was doing it for the whole race and exclusively swimming that stroke, whereas the Cavills, as we were talking about, were kind of experimenting with it Mm. partly at the end. And then Wickham also stayed in Sydney and he became a really prominent competitive swimmer in Sydney himself. We have lots of lots of competitions that he won. There's lots of uh, photographs of him, which we'll also put up. He um, yeah, he was in local swimming competitions and clubs and became a part of uh, the Sydney swimming world. And yeah, the the stroke became mainstreamed and popularized and it very quickly became the thing that uh, Australians were swimming. And then when it was taken to international competitions, what the, the whole world ended up swimming. Fascinating. Does he have any bars named after him? Alec Wickham, I do not believe has... No, there's nothing named after him. If you go down to Bronte Pool, there is, there is a small historical kind of write-up on a kind of... At the back of the pool, uh, it's pretty easy to see once you go down there. And I think he's mentioned in that. Um, and the story is mentioned there, but they're probably not the full detail as we've had it in this podcast because they wouldn't have had enough room. <laughs> a brilliant reason. Thanks, Alistair. That is an excellent story. Um, super interesting. Something I hadn't really given much consideration to at all. And um, as always, fascinating to find out something that in no surprising way turns out to be a bit of um, basically white supremacy um, in the Australian Sydney's history. And yeah, I mean, I guess if I'd heard that story, it would be interesting to find out that it's um, sort of definitely um, exaggerated in some elements and, and just false in others. But I, I'd never come across it before. So thank you for starting the story with a red herring, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised I hadn't really heard of it before because swimming is such a big part of like the Australian self-image. I thought you would have for sure. I, I really hadn't heard about it until, I don't know, started just reading around to make these episodes. Mm. But yeah, it, it, swimming is such a big part of our image. Australian crawl, seem, I mean, probably it's not the greatest story to tell because very quickly you have to just talk about importing it. But it seems like the kind of story that Australians would love to tell, you know, that that there's this great thing that we invented that's really good for a competitive sport. We love competitive sports. So, but I hadn't really heard about it. And yeah, the red herring, I, so I'm not sure I told the story 
exactly as I planned. But I said at the start it was in 1897 and then... You changed it to 1901. Yeah, I noticed Yeah, that. and I didn't explain that. It's because when they had to rewrite the history to make all the dates fit, they had to pretend that the Bronte Pools event happened in 1897 so that it was before what the Cavills were doing. Right. I, in some ways, it's like, you know, they did it properly enough to actually fudge some dates to make it work. <laughs> but then, yeah, I guess at the time, people people had lived through it, so they knew that the dates wouldn't work unless you pretended that the Wickham swim was in 1897. But yeah, um, basically, it, it, there's conclusive evidence that it took place in 1901. Ah, and this was only uncovered um, in the early start of this millennium. Yeah, the at least as far as I know, the like really thorough... Uh, research showing exactly what happened and with lots and lots of primary sources and all of that. That's the only place I found it was in these academic articles. Fascinating. Yeah, the internet is a morass of really confusing, conflicting accounts. (laughs) I can't imagine why. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you uh, very much, Alistair, for that excellent episode. Uh, And if you don't mind, I will take this opportunity to provide you a clue that I've prepared in advance for uh, our next episode. I would love to hear your clue. It's been a long time between clues. <laughs> Especially since my last clue was absolutely unmanageable. Aren't they all? <laughs> Excuse- well, I've actually got two drafted here, and I think I know which one I'll be choosing now <laughs> after that okay. comment. I w- oh, look, I'm not going to get them anyway, but let's go. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> So this clue takes the form of a short anecdote. A punter at the Darwin Casino, upon hearing from what state I hailed, informed me that New South Wales was, quote, the gay state. Now, I figured it was about time to do an episode that celebrates that fact and celebrates that fact like only the gays can. All right. Is it an episode about Mardi Gras? (laughs) No, you'll have to wait and find out. All right, I like it. I, I, yeah, it's kind of. I never thought of New South Wales being a gay state. I, I <laughs> feel like Sydney, Sydney has like quite prominent kind of gay community, but it seems it seems kind of a interesting to be like not nah, the whole state. Also, <laughs> yeah, I always think about what a couple of blokes in Broken Hill would have to say about about that categorization. <laughs> but it's all about scale, isn't it, and perspective. Yeah. Um, great. I'm uh, very much looking forward to what you have prepared. We'll see what it's about. Could be anything. It certainly could be. Alrighty. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. It's good to be back for the second half of season two. And uh, we'll see you in a fortnight's time for my story from Sydney. Sydney.